Section 9 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 9. The Borgias. Chapter 5. Part 1. Piero dei Medici had, as we may remember, undertaken to hold the entrance to Tuscany against the French. When, however, he saw his enemy coming down from the Alps, he felt less confident about his own strength, and demanded help from the Pope. But scarcely had the rumour of foreign invasion begun to spread in the Romagna than the Colonna family declared themselves the French king's men, and collecting all their forces seized Ostia, and there awaited the coming of the French fleet to offer a passage through Rome. The Pope, therefore, instead of sending troops to Florence, was obliged to recall all his soldiers to be near the capital. The only promise he made to Piero was that if Bajazet should send him the troops that he had been asking for, he would dispatch that army for him to make use of. Piero dei Medici had not yet taken any resolution or formed any plan, when he suddenly heard two startling pieces of news. A jealous neighbor of his, the Marquis of Torderiovo, had betrayed to the French the weak side of Fivizzano, so that they had taken it by storm, and had put its soldiers and inhabitants to the edge of the sword. On another side, Gilbert of Montpensier, who had been lighting up the sea-coast so as to keep open the communications between the French army and their fleet, had met with a detachment sent by Paolo Orsini to Sarzano to reinforce the garrison there, and after an hour's fighting had cut it to pieces. No quarter had been granted to any of the prisoners. Every man the French could get hold of they had massacred. This was the first occasion on which the Italians, accustomed as they were to the chivalrous contests of the fifteenth century, found themselves in contact with savage foreigners who, less advanced in civilization, had not yet come to consider war as a clever game, but looked upon it as simply a mortal conflict. So the news of these two butcheries produced a tremendous sensation at Florence, the richest city in Italy, and the most prosperous in commerce and in art. Every Florentine imagined the French to be like an army of those ancient barbarians who were wont to extinguish fire with blood. The prophecies of Savonarola, who had predicted the foreign invasion and the destruction that should follow it, were recalled to the minds of all, and so much perturbation was evinced that Piero dei Medici, bent on getting peace at any price, forced a decree upon the Republic whereby she was to send an embassy to the conqueror, and obtained leave, resolved as he was to deliver himself in person into the hands of the French monarch, to act as one of the ambassadors. He accordingly quitted Florence, accompanied by four other messengers, and on his arrival at Pietrasanta sent to ask from Charles the Eighth a safe conduct for himself alone. The day after he made this request, Brigonette and de Piennes came to fetch him, and led him into the presence of Charles the Eighth. Piero dei Medici, in spite of his name and influence, 
was in the eyes of the French nobility, who considered it a dishonorable thing to concern oneself with art or industry, nothing more than a rich merchant, with whom it would be absurd to stand upon any very strict ceremony. So Charles the Eighth received him on horseback, and addressing him with a haughty air, as a master might address a servant, demanded whence came this pride of his that made him dispute his entrance into Tuscany. Piero dei Medici replied that, with the actual consent of Louis the Eleventh, his father Lorenzo had concluded a treaty of alliance with Ferdinand of Naples, that accordingly he had acted in obedience to prior obligations, but as he did not wish to push too far his devotion to the house of Aragon or his opposition to France, he was ready to do whatever Charles the Eighth might demand of him. The king, who had never looked for such humility in his enemy, demanded that Sarzano should be given up to him. To this Piero dei Medici at once consented. Then the conqueror, wishing to see how far the ambassador of the magnificent republic would extend his politeness, replied that this concession was far from satisfying him, and that he still must have the keys of Pietrasanta, Pisa, Librafata, and Livorno. Piero saw no more difficulty about these than about Sarzano, and consented, on Charles's mere promise by word of mouth to restore the town when he had achieved the conquest of Naples. At last Charles the Eighth, seeing that this man who had been sent out to negotiate with him was very easy to manage, exacted as a final condition, a sine qua non, however, of his royal protection, that the magnificent republic should lend him the sum of two hundred thousand florins. Piero found it no harder to dispose of money than of fortresses, and replied that his fellow-citizens would be happy to render this service to their new ally. Then Charles the Eighth set him on horseback, and ordered him to go on in front, so as to begin to carry out his promises by yielding up the four fortresses he had insisted on having. Piero obeyed, and the French army, led by the grandson of Cosimo the Great, and the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, continued its triumphal march through Tuscany. On his arrival at Lucca, Piero dei Medici learnt that his concessions to the King of France were making a terrible commotion at Florence. The magnificent Republic had supposed that what Charles the Eighth wanted was simply a passage through her territory. So when the news came, there was a general feeling of discontent, which was augmented by the return of the other ambassadors, whom Piero had not even consulted when he took action as he did. Piero considered it necessary that he should return, so he asked Charles's permission to precede him to the capital. As he had fulfilled all his promises, except the matter of the loan, which could not be settled anywhere but at Florence, the king saw no objection, and the very evening after he quitted the French army, Piero returned incognito to his palace in the Via Largo. The next day he proposed to present himself before the Signoria, but when he arrived at the Piazza del Palazzo Vecchio, he perceived the gonfalonieri Jacopo de Nerli coming towards him, signalling him that it was useless to attempt to go farther, and pointing out to him the figure of Luca Corsini standing at the gate, sword in hand. Behind him stood guards, ordered, if need were, to dispute his passage. Piero dei Medici, amazed by an opposition that he was experiencing for the first time in his life, did not attempt resistance, 
he went home and wrote to his brother-in-law, Paolo Orsini, to come and help him with his gendarmes. Unluckily for him, his letter was intercepted. The Signoria considered that it was an attempt at rebellion. They summoned the citizens to their aid. They armed hastily, sallied forth in crowds, and thronged about the piazza of the palace. Meanwhile, Cardinal John de Medici had mounted on horseback, and under the impression that the Orsini were coming to the rescue, was riding about the streets of Florence accompanied by his servants and uttering his battle-cry, Pale, Pale! But times had changed. There was no echo to the cry, and when the cardinal reached the Via dei Calezioli, a threatening murmur was the only response, and he understood that instead of trying to arouse Florence, he had much better get away before the excitement ran too high. He promptly retired to his own palace, expecting to find there his two brothers, Piero and Giuliano. But they, under the protection of Orsini and his gendarmes, had made their escape by the Porto San Gallo. The peril was imminent, and John de Medici wished to follow their example, but wherever he went he was met by a clamor that grew more and more threatening. At last, as he saw that the danger was constantly increasing, he dismounted from his horse and ran into a house that he found standing open. This house, by a lucky chance, communicated with a convent of Franciscans. One of the friars lent the fugitive his dress, and the cardinal, under the protection of this humble incognito, contrived at last to get outside Florence, and joined his two brothers in the Apennines. The same day the Medici were declared traitors and rebels, and ambassadors were sent to the King of France. They found him at Pisa, where he was granting independence to the town, which eighty-seven years ago had fallen under the rule of the Florentines. Charles the Eighth made no reply to the envoys, but merely announced that he was going to march on Florence. Such a reply, one may easily understand, terrified the Republic. Florence had no time to prepare a defense, and no strength in her present state to make one. But all the powerful houses assembled, and armed their own servants and retainers, and awaited the issue, intending not to begin hostilities, but to defend themselves should the French make an attack. It was agreed that if any necessity should arise for taking up arms, the bells of the various churches in the town should ring a peal, and so serve as a general signal. Such a resolution was perhaps of more significant moment in Florence than it could have been in any other town, for the palaces that still remain from that period are virtually fortresses, and the eternal fights between Guelphs and Ghibellines had familiarized the Tuscan people with street warfare. The king appeared on the 17th of November, in the evening, at the gate of San Friano, he found there the nobles of Florence clad in their most magnificent apparel, accompanied by priests chanting hymns, and by a mob who were full of joy at any prospect of change, and hoped for a return of liberty after the fall of the Medici. Charles the Eighth stopped for a moment under a sort of gilded canopy that had been prepared for him, and replied in a few evasive words to the welcoming speeches which were addressed to him by the Signoria. Then he asked for his lance. He set it in rest, and gave the order to enter the town, the whole of which he paraded with his army following him with arms erect, and then went down to the palace of the Medici, which had been prepared for him. The next day negotiations commenced, 
but everyone was out of his reckoning. The Florentines had received Charles the Eighth as a guest, but he had entered the city as a conqueror. So when the deputies of the Signoria spoke of ratifying the treaty of Piero dei Medici, the king replied that such a treaty no longer existed, as they had banished the man who made it that he had conquered Florence as he proved the night before when he entered lance in hand, that he should retain the sovereignty and would make any further decision whenever it pleased him to do so. Further, he would let them know later on whether he would reinstate the Medici or whether he would delegate his authority to the Signoria. All they had to do was to come back the next day and he would give them his ultimatum in writing. This reply threw Florence into a great state of consternation, but the Florentines were confirmed in their resolution of making a stand. Charles, for his part, had been astonished by the great number of the inhabitants. Not only was every street he had passed through thickly lined with people, but every house from garret to basement seemed overflowing with human beings. Florence, indeed, thanks to her rapid increase in population, could muster nearly one hundred fifty thousand souls the next day at the appointed hour the deputies made their appearance to meet the king they were again introduced into his presence and the discussion was reopened at last as they were coming to no sort of understanding the royal secretary standing at the foot of the throne upon which charles the eighth sat with covered head unfolded a paper and began to read article by article the conditions imposed by the King of France. But scarcely had he read a third of the document when the discussion began more hotly than ever before. Then Charles the Eighth said that thus it should be, or he would order his trumpets to be sounded. Hereupon Piero Caponi, secretary to the Republic, commonly called the Scipio of Florence, snatched from the royal secretary's hand the shameful proposal of capitulation, and tearing it to pieces, exclaimed, very good sire blow your trumpets and we will ring our bells he threw the pieces in the face of the amazed reader and dashed out of the room to give the terrible order that would convert the streets of florence into a battlefield still against all probabilities this bold answer saved the town the french supposed from such audacious words addressed as they were to men who so far had encountered no single obstacle that the Florentines were possessed of sure resources to them unknown. The few prudent men who retained any influence over the king advised him accordingly to abate his pretensions. The result was that Charles the Eighth offered new and more reasonable conditions which were accepted, signed by both parties, and proclaimed on the 26th of November during Mass in the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. These were the conditions. The Signoria were to pay to Charles the Eighth as subsidy the sum of one hundred and twenty thousand florins in three installments. The Signoria were to remove the sequestration imposed upon the property of the Medici and to recall the decree that set a price on their heads. The Signoria were to engage to pardon the Pisans on condition of their again submitting to the rule of Florence. Lastly, the Signoria were to recognize the claims of the Duke of Milan over Sarzano and Pietrasanta, and these claims thus recognized were to be settled by arbitration. In exchange for this, the King of France pledged himself to restore the fortresses that had been given up to him, 
either after he had made himself master of the town of Naples, or when this war should be ended by a peace or a two years' truce, or else when, for any reason whatsoever, he should have quitted Italy. Two days after this proclamation, Charles the Eighth, much to the joy of the Signoria, left Florence and advanced towards Rome by the route of Poggibondi and Siena. The Pope began to be affected by the general terror. He had heard of the massacres of Fivizzano, of Lungiani, and of Imola. He knew that Piero dei Medici had handed over the Tuscan fortresses, that Florence had succumbed, and that Catherine Sforza had made terms with the conqueror. He saw the broken remnants of the Neapolitan troops pass disheartened through Rome to rally their strength in the Abruzzi, and thus he found himself exposed to an enemy who was advancing upon him with the whole of the Romagna under his control, from one sea to the other, in a line of march extending from Piombina to Ancona. It was at this juncture that Alexander the Sixth received his answer from Bajazet the Second. The reason of so long a delay was that the Pope's envoy and the Neapolitan ambassador had been stopped by John della Rovera, the Cardinal Giuliano's brother, just as they were disembarking at Senegalia. They were charged with a verbal answer, which was that the Sultan at this moment was busied with a triple war, first with the Sultan of Egypt, secondly with the King of Hungary, and thirdly with the Greeks of Macedonia and Epirus and therefore he could not, with all the will in the world, help his holiness with armed men. But the envoys were accompanied by a favorite of the sultan's, bearing a private letter to Alexander the Sixth, in which Bajazet offered on certain conditions to help him with money. Although, as we see, the messengers had been stopped on the way, the Turkish envoy had all the same found a means of getting his despatch sent to the Pope we give it here in all its naivete. Quote, Bejazet the Sultan, son of the Sultan Mohammed II, by the grace of God, Emperor of Asia and Europe, to the Father and Lord of all the Christians, Alexander the Sixth, Roman Pontiff and Pope by the will of heavenly providence. First, greetings that we owe him and bestow with all our heart. We make known to your highness by the envoy of your mightiness, Giorgio Bucciarda, that we have been apprised of your convalescence, and received the news thereof with great joy and comfort. Among other matters, the said Bucciarda has brought us word that the King of France, now marching against your highness, has shown a desire to take under his protection our brother de Gem, who is now under yours, a thing which is not only against our will, but which would also be the cause of great injury to your highness and to all Christendom. In turning the matter over with your envoy Giorgio, we have devised a scheme most conducive to peace, and most advantageous and honorable to your highness, at the same time satisfactory to ourselves personally. It would be well if our aforesaid brother de Gem, who, being a man, is liable to death, and who is now in the hands of your highness, should quit this world as soon as possible, seeing that his departure, a real good to him in his position, would be of great use to your highness, and very conducive to your peace, while at the same time it would be very agreeable to us, your friend. 
if this proposition is favorably received as we hope by your highness in your desire to be friendly towards us it would be advisable both in the interests of your highness and for our own satisfaction that it should occur rather sooner than later and by the surest means that you might be pleased to employ so that our said brother de gem might pass from the pains of this world into a better and more peaceful life where at last he may find repose if your highness should adopt this plan and send us the body of our brother we the above-named sultan bejazet pledge ourselves to send to your highness wheresoever and by whatsoever hands you please the sum of three hundred thousand ducats with which sum you could purchase some fair domain for your children in order to facilitate this purchase we would be willing while awaiting the issue to place the three hundred thousand ducats in the hands of a third party so that your highness might be quite certain of receiving the money on an appointed day in return for the despatch of our brother's body moreover we promise your highness herewith for your greater satisfaction that never so long as you shall remain on the pontifical throne shall there be any hurt done to the christians neither by us nor by our servants nor by any of our compatriots of whatsoever kind or condition they may be neither on sea nor on land and for the still further satisfaction of your highness and in order that no doubt whatever may remain concerning the fulfilment of our promises we have sworn and affirmed in the presence of Bucciarda, your envoy, by the true God whom we adore, and by our holy gospels, that they shall be faithfully kept from the first point unto the last. And now for the final and complete assurance of your Highness, in order that no doubt may still remain in your heart, and that you may be once again and profoundly convinced of our good faith, we the aforesaid Sultan Bajazet do swear by the true God, who has created the heavens and the earth and all that therein is that we will religiously observe all that has been above said and declared and in the future will do nothing and undertake nothing that may be contrary to the interests of your highness given at constantinople in our palace on the twelfth of september a d fourteen ninety four end of section nine